Hey, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed your days off. Hey, the good news is uh, we're keeping your seniority and your your uh, pay rate per hour at the same rate. Pretty much everything the same, except uh, they've had to uh, while you're gone they uh, revamp the um, you know the benefits package. So you want to read up that email, and um, best I can suggest is. Um, See if your spouse has got some good benefits. Maybe you can get on their plan or else um, some. there's a, a group uh, getting together to uh, check out how to apply for government benefits. Okay, so anyway, welcome back to the Dungeons & Day Jobs podcast. The uh, story I'm going to read today is The Wire Tetragrammaton. I think I wrote it. I pieced together a bunch of ideas I had, little short story idea fragments that I never put, that I never spelled out into a full story. And what I did is I, uh, I thought they were similar enough. They, they kind of complemented each other. I think I finished writing it just before coming out with the um, short story collection known as Dungeons & Day Jobs, which is still available for purchase. Go to evilbobdayjob.tripod.com. Uh, and this one probably has the most to do with work and day jobs. And um, you can see there's kind of fantasy aspects of it, but not like dungeon uh, high fantasy. Is that called a high fantasy? I don't know. There's no trolls or goblins in this, but there's a little weirdness. There's a little bit off, and um, you can feel a dungeon-like uh, quality. And I'm I'm gonna say, everybody who is who survived the uh, rounds of layoffs in the last couple of years, um, this it wasn't you, but there were some ideas in this story that I got from work. It's no, uh, what do you call it? It's, there's no, like, trade secrets or anything. Uh, nothing Nothing I'm telling out of school. It's just there are, uh, let's say there are some characters or behaviors of workers or people in these stories that were inspired by people on this job and, and other jobs I've had in the past. But you don't know where I work now, so it's not really telling most readers. And I don't suspect anybody at work, except maybe Nadia will uh, hear this anyway. Anyway. I hope you like it. It's called The Wire Tetragrammaton. And if you don't know what that word means, tetragrammaton, it's kind of spelled out in the text of the story. So here we go. Some of it kind of works better, I think, uh, written on the page, but uh, we'll see how it works uh, spoken. The Wire Tetragrammaton. One. This guy at work told me about an art gallery hidden in the pizza place where he used to work. One night he was mopping the back room with most of the lights off, waiting for the manager to finish paperwork so they could split. He noticed a sliver of light coming from under this rack of pizza boxes in the back corner. Where the wall of the walk-in freezer meets up with the back wall of the store, he saw a gap with light filtering through. He pulled the rack out of the way to see it better. Eight inches wide at the bottom, tapering up to nothing. He bent down to look through the gap, and there's Bridget, painting herself into the corner. The girl who stopped coming to work three weeks ago. Everybody thought she had quit, but really she had slipped through that crack and stayed at work. She hadn't gone home in three weeks. He said a twin-sized mattress standing on end could hardly fit inside that space, but she's in there with a light bulb, a brush, and a palette, painting every square inch of those hidden walls. Tiny scenes of medieval countrysides, little farmers leading donkeys, minstrels playing lutes, hay wagons full of corpses, Lots of monks and bishops and goats and tiny songbirds. She wouldn't come out on her own. Her parents and her sister and the police couldn't convince her to come out all night. The owner authorized fire rescue workers to pry open the gap with jaws of life so they could remove her, 
since they classified her as a trespasser by that point. Bridget got some counseling. She started working at a halfway house or clubhouse or community center, whatever you call those things, helping other people like her. The guy who told me that story had to quit working at the pizza joint. He was having nightmares about those tiny farmers and minstrels sealed up behind a crack in the wall where no one will ever see them again. Two. This guy I worked with at corporate finished his shift one night and couldn't find his car. Big parking lot, you know, so he was looking around for a while. It wasn't stolen, he just couldn't find it. This was a Friday afternoon, so we were surprised to see him on Monday morning with red-rimmed eyes, wearing the same clothes, stumbling in and asking someone to cover for him. He figured another 10 or 20 minutes and he could find his car. Then he'd be right in and get back to work. He promised to make up the time he missed. The other guys make fun of him now when they see him stalking between cars or sleeping next to the backup generator out back of the building. I smile and say hi. Sometimes a couple of gals pitch in to buy him a sandwich. He doesn't cry anymore as he trudges through the lot, but he still has that look. Three. This guy I used to work with had a breakdown. He had just been promoted to regional manager, which meant a lot more spreadsheets and emails and meetings about how to cut down on all the spreadsheets and emails and meetings. His wife called to let us know that he was going on short-term disability and to say he'd be back to work as soon as he was able. She said he had gotten carried away with TLAs, three-letter acronyms. It was just silly when it started. He'd say WFD instead of what's for dinner or PPS for please pass the salad. That got old quick. GWP, get with the program. INS, I'm not sick. SOC, slept on couch. When he started using acronyms that incorporated other acronyms within them, she couldn't understand them anymore. He would say ITSS when he meant IMHO, TLAs, SB, SOP. That's, in my humble opinion, IMHO, TLAs, three-letter acronyms, SB, should be, SOP, Standard Operating Procedure. He got hostile to anyone who didn't pick up on his coded layers of acronyms. Eventually, she took him to a place where he could get the kind of help he needed. Nobody at work had noticed anything wrong. We all understood what he was saying, A-F-A-I-K. Four. When I worked at corporate, I met this kid who had a brand on his shoulder, Gordy, in Shipping and Receiving. I asked if he got it in a fraternity. He said no, and when I kept asking, he smiled and waved me off. I had to pry the story out of somebody else. Years back, the shipping supervisor had issued a cranky memo. I realize it's a boring job, but there's no excuse for the stick figures and graffitis that have been found etched on the sides of two desks. This behavior is unprofessional and unacceptable. Defacing company property may result in severe reprimands, of which may include termination. One of the janitors saw the memo posted on the bulletin board and told the boss, That's not your people, that's the kids. We've been trying to catch all the kids that got away on the latest bring your child to work day, but three or four of them are still loose in the building. He promised to round them up soon, but within a week the stick figures became a border pattern at knee level throughout the department. They found rolls of twine and brown wrapping paper unfurled across the floor each morning. Another day when they came in, the postage machine on the letter table was surrounded by a partial igloo made out of packages of paper. The supervisor took matters into his own hands. He left a Rubik's Cube on the floor of his office and rigged the door to automatically swing shut and lock. It worked. Go figure. Next morning, he called facilities to take care of this kid he caught. A woman from Human Resources answered. He started to apologize for misdialing, 
But when the woman understood his situation, she thanked him. Don't call facilities, she said. We can take care of that for you. Now, I don't know where they raise the kids, maybe in a spare warehouse. Maybe they outsource that part of it. I'd have thought it cost too much to feed them and care for them until they hit legal working age. But think of how much they save by eliminating all the interviews, help-wanted ads, temps, all that paperwork, not to mention wages and benefits when you can train them from a young age and just call down to the warehouse when you run low. It works so well that Bring Your Child to Work Day became a monthly event with t-shirts and prizes and bonuses for employees who participated. Things really got rolling when they opened an on-site daycare center. Oh, I forgot to mention, Gordy was that first rascal who drew the stick figures on the sides of desks. What a little attention seeker. Five. This guy at work, we'll call him Whitney, got hung up on the idea of designing the ultimate paperclip. Long before he perfected it, he came up with the name for it, the Wire Tetragrammaton. You know when you walk into a room and you hear people talking about you and they say, Speak of the devil, ha ha ha. The legend is that if you say the true secret name of a devil or demon, then it has to answer your call. Some people figured the same thing applies to God, that if you work out his secret name, one powerful word, then you could call him and make, your, make him do your bidding. It might be a certain pronunciation of Yahweh or Jehovah or YHWH or some combination of those letters. That's the tetragrammaton, the four letters of his name in some Bibles. It would explain why he's so particular about mortals taking his name in vain. Hold on, I'm getting back to the paperclip. You've seen at least a couple different designs of paperclips, right? Your standard oblong spiral, or a triangle, or that crisscross version for holding thick stacks. Whitney figured there must be some perfect design that would hold papers adequately, but also one that could draw a line, erase, receive AM radio signals, walk itself across your desktop, and if you folded it precisely in a certain complex pattern, it would do your entire job for you. He was a hard worker, which is why they gave him extra leeway when his work started to slip. Verbal warnings quickly turned into written warnings. Everyone had seen him toying with the rolls of wire on his desk, shaping, snipping, testing, while his daily job responsibilities piled up untouched. They had to let him go. Given all the free time he suddenly had at home, it took him about a month to work it out. He had put together hundreds of prototypes that failed to write or erase, or even hold papers together better than the standard design. It always seemed to work better in his head than in practice. Whitney got a small advance for his book, titled The Wire Tetragrammaton. It was about finding what you really want in life, your personal key to happiness, how to recognize and avoid the empty substitutes for happiness that we all pursue, like money and prestige, when we really want love and respect and satisfaction. For Whitney, the wire tetragrammaton design was the empty substitute. What would he have done if he had broken the code and finally designed the ultimate paperclip, one that could tune in Paul Harvey and walk across the desk and do his job for him? He would sit behind his desk and stare at it to make sure it worked right, still hating his job as paperclip monitor, still wishing he could escape. Sales took off. He hit the talk show circuit. He got offers to run seminars with the Men Are From Mars guy and the chicken soup for the whatever soul folks. But Whitney took the bunny and ran. There was no design for an ultimate paperclip that would get him out of his job, but with the right combination of words, he was able to retire and never had to work another day. Six. Now here's the story you can tell about this guy you know. I used to drive 31 miles up and down the highway to the bakery. Really, it's a donut shop. 100 people buy donuts and one person orders a cake for graduation. They want to call it a bakery instead of a donut shop. Go figure. 
they paid me enough to get a house and made it worth my while to drive 31 miles each way to work. You'd be surprised how little it takes to get some people driving that far. I guess they didn't pay me enough to make it my life, because here I am by the side of the road. When depression set in hard about year seven, I tried to distract myself with hobbies. Anything that helped me stop thinking about the next three or four decades I expected to spend making donuts, washing out industrial mixers with that fermenting dough smell. I made pencil drawings and tried painting for a little while. Nothing you'd be interested in. Nothing I was really interested in. I painted a few birdhouses, which got me outside and looking around the yard a little more. I started a vegetable garden along the side of the house. Then I extended it all around the back of the house. Now the front yard is all flower beds and beans and tomatoes with a sidewalk running through. Anyway, I wanted to start composting my kitchen scraps and dead leaves and stuff, but I'm too cheap to buy one of those bins specially made for composting. Too mechanically incompetent to try building one. So one day on my way to the bakery, I see this plastic garbage barrel stuck under a guardrail on the side of the road. Perfect for making my own compost bin. Except I hesitate, and by the time I talk myself into getting it, I'm a mile past it. I'd be late for work if I turned around to get it, so I let it go. Luckily, it was still there when I came home from work. I banged it off as much as I could, hunks of leaves stuck to the outside, before I stuck it in the back of the ca Cavalier. The garbage can had a big gash under the rim, but that worked out perfectly. You don't want an airtight bin for composting, because the bacteria needs oxygen to break down your banana peels or whatever. First thing you need to do is bust a bunch of holes around the thing, which I did with the claw end of a hammer. Then I nailed some holes in the bottom so water would drain out. Great little at-home project, because you can't hardly screw it up. There's nothing to do but poke holes in the thing and fill it with the stuff to rot. How can you go wrong? The next week on my way to work, I watched for more garbage cans. Not that I needed another one, but the first one had worked so well. I saw a milk crate and brought that home. Used it to stack up some potted plants. I had a lot of pot, uh, plants in containers. Cut up milk cartons that looked like grade school science projects so I could grow more spider plants and ivies. Even with a row of them on the sidewalk, you had enough room to get by without stepping off the path. For two weeks, I saw nothing worth picking up. Just mufflers, Burger King cups, piece of a plastic bumper cover. But I watched harder on the way to work and on the way home. I thought about it all day at work. One night, I tried coming home on the back roads. Maybe I was missing some good stuff on all those country roads with the big ditches on either side. But that's a wash. Some of those ditches are along people's front yards so they pick up anything that falls there, and some of the ditches are full of tall weeds that would mask anything good. Mainly, I think the highway just gets so much more traffic, there's more opportunities for stuff to fall off trucks or for people to throw things out. It's not worth it to spend your time looking on residential streets. I figured that out pretty quick. I tried to think of something I could use a muffler for or that scrap of plastic panel. They'd probably be useful to somebody. Finally, I saw something orange one day, a grubby pylon with a big streak of grease or maybe a tire print across it. After a few days passing it on my way to work, I figured I could turn it upside down and use it for a planter. I pulled over and had to cross all four lanes of traffic to get it. At home, I brought it into the basement and considered how it could work best as a planter. It couldn't balance on the small pointy end if it was full of dirt. I could bury half of the point in the ground, leaving the big opening at the top, but the yard was full. There was no more space to bury it. It would have to go on the sidewalk or the front steps. I decided to cut the point off, set it on its base, and fill the opening with dirt. I made a mark on the side of it where I wanted to cut, then started thinking about what to plant in it. Another spider? Aloe vera? Should I cut it off near the top or lower down? Once it's cut, I can't change my mind. I set this one aside and waited to pick up another pylon to experiment on first. There were no pylons on the way to work. All friggin' spring you see pylons crushed and littering the side of the road, but when you finally want one, of course they're all gone. 
I took a bagel and two donuts on my lunch break and drove down the highway the opposite direction from my place, a stretch that I don't see too often. Nothing but a muffler down that way. I could probably cut a muffler in half and make two planters out of it, but that would take some kind of cutting torch or heavy-duty saw or something. You see how stuff started to blossom in front of me? I was opening up to all the things discarded along the side of the road, and I kept imagining how they could be useful to me or to other people. If a person gathered all this stuff and set up a junk shop or a booth at a flea market, how much money could you make off it? Would it be enough to live on? I started getting written up at work for being late, putting all those mufflers and plastic panels in my car on the way to work. Even disposable drink cups are useful. You tear up the paper cup and add it to your composter. That stuff will break down just like newspapers or leaves. Why let the weeds by the side of the road benefit from that when my plants can get the reward? People just can't see the value in it. Stuff all around they could be using. Finally, I got to the point where I was finding more and more good stuff, and I'm thinking, do I really need to be dumping sacks of flour into mixers all day? I spent my days moving ingredients, jugs of milk, bags of mix, eggs, sugar, then heaving the trays into ovens, pull them out and glaze them, sprinkles and hearts and drizzled chocolate over the top. Then you move all these trays out to the display cases. Then you listen to customers ask why you don't sell half-calf or fresh-made pitas or hummus or at least some goddamn locks. Or why did you stop selling those mocha maltachinos? Those were so good. Listen, why don't you schmucks make my job a lot easier? We'll move this counter out of the way, bring you suckers straight in back of the store, and I can just pour the flour and sugar and eggs and decorations straight down your gullet. Or save your body the time and effort of trying to digest it. We'll just inject it straight into your ass and your heart, because that's where it's going to settle. I never said that to a customer, because I thought it all through on my way into work when I was finding all kinds of cans and paper fast food wrappers and pieces of metal. Do you realize how many little nuts and bolts and nails are just lying by the side of the road? I can pick up probably two pounds every five miles, and that's without even getting down to look in the weeds or moving the gravel around to see what might be covered up. How can you pass that by knowing what scrap metal goes for these days? I didn't make it into work that day. Now, I'll be the first to admit that the basement was filling up with mufflers and things I hadn't found uses for. Getting through the washing machine with a full basket of clothes took some skill not to trip. But I don't know why Shannon couldn't see all the things we could do with those pylons and mufflers. As soon as I took a couple of milk crates full of metal to the scrap dealer, I started bringing money in again. I'm sorry, but she was the one being unreasonable. She just wasn't as practical as me, so she had to split us up. She still says it's my fault, but she's the one who asked me to move out. If I had asked her to move out, then it would be my fault. She couldn't pay the house note on her own. We could have managed between her income and mine once I started selling stuff at flea markets, but she never gave me a chance. If I could have done it once or twice at a flea market, then she'd have seen the money coming in. I make enough now off cans and bottles to keep the car running. Without the car, I wouldn't be able to keep finding stuff. Plus, I find better things some days, like there was a stuffed animal tiger wearing a Santa hat and scarf. I got a few dollars off that at the pawn shop. Probably two or three times a week, I find car parts or hubcaps or a baseball cap that they'll buy at the junkyard or one of the pawn shops around town. And there's Ella on, on Height Street. She runs a yard sale on her porch almost year-round. I guess she stops when it snows because there aren't enough people walking by. The rest of the time she has kids' clothes hanging from a line on her front porch and a folding table with toys and appliances on her lawn. Sometimes if I find something the pawn shops don't want, Ella will pay 50 cents for it. Sometimes she won't take it, but she's always nice and says, no thank you. She never tells you to stop coming around with your junk. I still get along with Shannon. She'll stop and give me a few bucks when she sees me getting bottles. Another example is, even after she made me move out, I helped her move into her apartment. 
we had kept up house payments for maybe two extra months by selling my radio, the TV, a bunch of gardening books, but it wasn't enough. We were civil for a few hours hauling boxes. When we got it all unloaded at her new place, we sat down with some pop, and she told me she was still pissed. She said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you're going to hit a low point, and you're going to realize how ridiculous this is. Then you're going to get some help, I hope. I said, where am I going to go, to AA? No, you're going to see a psychiatrist because your priorities are whack. She still doesn't understand, but that's okay. I'm not going to hit any low point. What I've hit is a plateau. I mean, not a low plateau either. I don't have a boss to suck up to anymore. I don't have to humor pawn shop owners or Ella either, because there will always be other people willing to buy this crap. There's other towns, and it only takes a few bags of cans to save up travel expenses. I'm scooping up the natural resources around me, living off the refuse of the land, recycling the refuse of the land. I'm changing it from junk into things that people will use again. It's much more interesting than making another fucking tray of donuts. I never know what lies ahead of me. I found a $20 bill one time on a weed flapping in the breeze. Part of it was torn off, but there was enough intact that the bank took it. Shannon thinks I lost something on the side of the road, but she can't understand what I found. The End and thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Dungeons and Day Jobs podcast. This issue, this episode was The Wire Tetragrammaton. I'm your vault keeper, Robert Thomas Northrup. And if you like that story, boy howdy. And you can't wait for the rest of this short story collection to be read into uh, as a podcast. Or if you like it so darn much that you just want your own copy of the uh, 6x9 paperback, 170 pages, including uh, front material, then you can look at evilbobdayjob.tripod.com and find information on how to buy it. All right, so uh, you keep working there. Uh, make sure you get the back file and the 1017 work orders set. If, if you can, if you got time to do some of the, uh, the 4024s, that'd be cool too. But um, whatever you can get through... Oh, uh, I almost forgot one of the memos that came through on your time off also was horns are no longer appropriate part of dress code. They have to be trimmed to within two inches. <sighs> Boy, uh, Gorkron's been taking it really hard. He's been giving them attitude and slamming doors and stuff, but um, he's the only one that can keep the human staff in line, so they're not going to get rid of him or anything. All right, have a good one. Talk to you later.